Let me start off by wishing you very, very, very happy holidays. Hopefully, you're enjoying the downtime and also reviewing the year past and planning out your 2017. So in this episode, I talked to James Altucher about how he started from scratch and went on to start 20 companies and write 18 books. I also asked James about what is the single biggest, single best way to accelerate success in life. And his answer was really simple and really profound and something that is now embedded in my mind. It is so amazingly simple. Well, hello, hello, my ambitious friends, and welcome to 2000 Books. Every Monday and Wednesday, we bring you the most important actionable ideas from the world's greatest books for ambitious entrepreneurs. Books in the field of startups, marketing, sales, productivity, management, leadership, strategy, personal development, and much, much more. And I am your host, Manny Vaya. James Altucher is a serial entrepreneur who has started 20 businesses and written 18 books. His book, Choose Yourself, talks about how he lost around $15 million and built himself back up again. James, I'm really excited to delve into this topic, delve into your story, delve into Choose Yourself. So, Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Manny. It's a really honor to be on this podcast and to talk books. I love talking about books more than just about anything else. So this is great. Maybe television number two. Books first, television two. That's great. I'm glad we're books first and television too, because if it was the other way around, I would have to have a conversation on the side with you about that. You should start a podcast, you know, 2000 television shows or something like that. <laughs> I, I would have to do a TV show on that. And I guess TV Guide yeah. or Entertainment Guide would do a good job on that. Or maybe a YouTube channel. I don't know. <laughs> no, I love books just like you do. I, I'm a fan of books. I, I learned so much. And of course, I've learned a lot from you, from your books, from your interviews, from your podcast, and from your blog as well. So uh, thank you for teaching us all these different lessons from your life over the years. For me, it's not about teaching other people lessons from my life. It's about me... A, I love writing, and B, it's about me learning from my own experiences so I could improve. And sometimes sharing that with others is the best way to hold myself accountable to my own advice that I've used and, and would like to use in my life. That's absolutely true. The, the things that we want to learn the most or the things that we kind of work on the most are always the things that we ourselves are trying to improve on the most. So Right. That's why I think there's so much example on the internet of what I call, let's just, I don't know what the genre you want to call it, like poor business writing or poor self-help writing, where people essentially stand up on a pedestal and give a lecture like, you should do this, you should do that. Here's 10 ways to be the best employee or to, to you know, start a business or whatever, or, or be, have a morning ritual, whatever it is. There's all these BS self-help where everyone's putting themselves on a pedestal, but you don't get a sense that they ever applied this to their own lives. And that's for me the most important thing. Like, can I apply this to my own life? Did the writer apply this to his own life? Is he holding himself accountable to the things he's recommending others? Because, you know, there's so much information out there. You have to know who to trust and what advice to respect. And not only that, as a society, as a species, we live by storytelling. We don't live by advice. That's so true. And that's one thing that, I guess, attracts a lot of people, including myself, to what you write. Because you're very vulnerable, you're very raw, and you're very honest. It's not that you're trying to put up a facade. That's just the way you write. That's just the way you put your ideas across. And it's really fun for us to read and learn from. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think storytelling is the best, you know, let me use a metaphor here. It's like we all live like Robinson Crusoe, you know, single inhabitants of these distant islands. And the way to travel from one island to another across these vast seas is a boat called storytelling. And that's that's the only way to really communicate. Yeah, yeah. And let's dig into your story because as you talk about it, back in the dot-com crash days, you were up by $15 million. Tell us about the rise of the business, the fall of the business, and what came as a result of it. Well, I mean, there's so many places to start, but I'm happy to start there because that's kind of dramatic. I had a really good business. It probably could have been a better business, but I honestly did not know the first thing about how to run a business. There's so many mistakes I made. In fact, you're giving me an idea for a blog post I could do right now. 
But, you know, one thing I didn't really understand was it's not enough to just have a good business. You also have to understand how the world and the market perceives your business, particularly if you're planning on selling your business. But I sold my business at a certain point when I thought the market was getting too saturated with the service I was offering. And the dot-com boom happened. And so I was able to cash out at a very high level. So let's say I, I had total cash of about 15 million, one five. And then within, I would call it two years, maybe a little more, let's call it three years, I was dead broke. And when I say dead broke, I mean, I would look at my bank account and it was like I was having an orgasm while looking at the screen. Like I had, you could imagine looking at your official bank account with, I think I was with Prudential and there was like 15,148,000, some amazing number in there. And like, I literally just wanted to just whatever. And uh, I won't, I won't repeat, repeat anything. <laughs> and, and then three years later, I was terrified of my life. I was just scared all the time. I was anxious. I was depressed. I had lost all this money and I'm, I'm, I'm fast forwarding here through everything. But I remember looking at my ATM machine and there was $143 left in my checking account. Mm. And and that was an exact number. So it, it's really bad to have nothing. I would have preferred to have gone from $15 million ahead to a million dollars in debt than to just have $143 left. Because if you're in debt, people are willing to work with you and figure things out and give you another chance because they want their money back. But if you just have nothing, then you basically have nothing. <laughs> and, and I equated, you know, net worth with self worth. So I really thought at that moment, I was worth zero. But even even worse is, along the way, when you're losing all this money, you have to make you have to make hundreds of bad decisions in a row to like lose that kind of money. And it just feels so bad to like make so many bad decisions in a row. Uh, and you know, I'm not saying there's a, there's a saying, no matter how good you are, uh, somebody else is better. So if I'm a great athlete, there's someone who's a better athlete. If I have a lot of money, there's someone with more money. Uh, but the same thing is true in reverse. Certainly losing $15 million and having $143 in the bank is not the worst thing in the world. I'd, there are people in war situations. There are people in jail. There are people who are in horrific situations in their relationships. And I could have easily been thankful that that hadn't happened to me. And in fact, when I had $143 in the bank, maybe only five years earlier, I had $143 in the bank and I was perfectly happy young man then. When you go from 15 million where you feel immortal, I had a bad view of money. Money made me feel like I literally could live forever and do anything. And that, of course, is the beginning of the end. When you go from that to $143, it feels a lot worse than just simply having $143 the entire time. Yeah, yeah. So it felt really bad. And I bet it felt really bad. But the ironic thing, or maybe I don't know how to categorize it, but the thing is, it repeated itself. You did this to yourself again, right? Yeah, and you know, I'm curious if the word irony applies, but irony might apply if it happened to me again, now that we're doing this podcast. <laughs> but the reality is, is, I didn't learn from my lesson. So I made the money back not right away and not all at once. It took a while, but like I made some money and then I lost it and then I made some money and then I lost it and then I made some money and then I lost it. You know, each time ranging from, you know, let's say a million dollars to $10 million to whatever. And I, and I kept thinking to myself, oh my gosh, how can I be this stupid again and again and again and again? Like the first time I made the money back, I thought to myself, this is great. It wasn't a fluke. I know how to make money. I seem to have some skill and I'm learning something. But then I lost it again. And I'm thinking like, what the heck is wrong with me? And then I remember one time, this was like after the third or fourth time, I was literally lying in a hammock in between my two houses that I owned at this point after, you know, making back a good amount of money. And it was raining. And I just didn't even want to go into my house. Like I was losing my marriage, losing my kids, losing my houses. I had no money in the bank again. And I was just lying in this hammock and it started raining and I was getting drenched. And I'm thinking, man, my life is just worthless. Like, how could this happen? 
again and again and again, like what critical thing am I not learning? I had to really figure that out for myself. And so I started to really pay attention and I write this down. I was writing every day, mm. so I was getting good at writing, but I decided, okay, well, I'm gonna write about myself. What, what am I learning on the way up? What am I doing well on the way up? And what am I doing wrong on the way down? Because this was happening to me so many times, and I've used this phrase before, but it was almost like statistically significant. Like I was like my own experimental group and control group. Like I could really see what was happening from a statistical point of view, what was working and what wasn't working. And so I did that and I saw some things that were in common and they were incredible to me how obvious it was afterwards and almost how easy it was afterwards. But despite the easiness, I wasn't following these steps and on the way down, I, it, was, it was almost like I'd make this money and I'd say to myself, well, okay, and I'm smacking my hands right now, okay, mm -hmm. that's it. My time to be good as a human being is over and now I could start being bad and it doesn't matter anymore because money makes me immortal. So it comes down to this view of money, but also then it comes down to these very simple, I don't even wanna call them habits because they're not quite habits, but a way of living life that I decided to switch to. And ever since then, it's not like I've had nonstop success since then, but what happens is very interesting. Success and failure are not always optional. Like no matter where you are in life, bad things are gonna happen to you and good things are gonna happen to you. And sometimes it's luck, sometimes it's not luck. But what did happen because I started applying what I call this daily practice to my life, what did happen is that my bounce back time has become incredibly fast. Mm. And what really amazes me, the last two times I've had major failures in my life, was after I made this discovery about what works on the way up and what doesn't work on the way down. And so I, after these last two major catastrophes in my life, or even three major catastrophes in my life, I just said, okay, well, here's another opportunity to apply to make sure I keep applying my own advice. And I've been amazed about how fast I bounced back. It's gone from years to literally days. And so that's the amazing thing to me about, about this daily practice that and so, so I started writing this to other people. I started advising, not advising, but I started writing about what happened to me maybe in like 2010, maybe even in 2011, I wrote this post about what worked on the way up and what didn't work on the way down. But even as early as, or as late as 2015 and even early 2016, I was able to say, good, now I'm, here's a catastrophe. I'm gonna apply my own advice. And I was amazed at how fast things came back. Mm. And um, let's. Let, I want to. I want to delve into those practices that you're talking about that you applied when you were on your way down. Because I think there is a lot of uh, um, a lot of learning for all of us in there. So let's talk about that. It, it, it seems like they were mostly centered around the idea of keeping your emotion, your yourself healthy, your emotional, your mental, your spiritual self healthy, right? Yes, exactly. Because let's just look at it from an extreme example. Let's say someone wants to start a successful business or meet the love of their life or write a book. Would they rather be sick in bed and you know wired up to all these tubes in a hospital? Or would they rather be, I don't know, super healthy and in shape and playing basketball every day? Certainly the latter. So on a very basic level, it's just kind of common sense. It's better to be healthy than unhealthy if you wanna achieve something great in your life, or if you want to bounce back, even if you want to bounce back from a depression, or if you want to bounce back from something, a mild failure, or a mild, let's call it a learning experience. So what I realized is that on the way, when I was on the bottom and going, moving up, whether it's making money or relationships or writing a book or whatever, I always had to do, I, I always had to kind of check the boxes at the end of the day on these four things. And then I'm going to add a fifth thing also at the end, which I kind of discovered later. Not discovered because that makes it seem like I'm finding something new. This is all almost this obvious, this advice. I don't even want to call it advice. It's so obvious. I, I wrote a book about this. I, I sell the book for 99 cents because why should people pay more than that for this advice? But what I check the box on is every day was I, did I do something for my physical health? So that doesn't mean, you know, take 85 supplements, go to the gym for two hours, then go running for six miles and run a marathon 10 times a year. 
you know, some people can do that. I can't do that. I've never been an athlete. You wouldn't look at me and say, oh my God, this is the perfect specimen of physical health. But I will tell you what I do every day. I need eight hours of sleep. So I get eight hours of sleep. That's very important to me. This has nothing to do with scientific research. It just has to do with what I need. I read some scientific research that getting eight hours of sleep allows these spinal fluids to wash through your brain and clean out kind of protein plaque that builds on your brain. And so if too much protein plaque builds on your brain, that's the cause of things like Alzheimer's and so on. So there's so many reasons why sleep is good, but I was just fascinated that sleeping eight hours a day is a really good technique for avoiding Alzheimer's. And so sleep hygiene is incredibly important. I've had Arianna Huffington on my podcast, and she and I just spoke about sleep because she wrote a book recently about sleep. Mm -hmm. So here's a woman who's, for 40 years, she's been super successful. She started the Huffington Post, of course. She sold it for $300 million, and she doesn't want to talk about any of that. All she wanted to talk about were, were the benefits of sleep hygiene, sleeping well. So that shows you how important sleep is for successful people. Mm -hmm. But sleep is just one part. So let's call it sleep, move, eat. So you want to eat well. And I just read this morning that, you know, don't start eating the second you wake up until the second you go to sleep. Like figure out how you could take a break from eating and don't consume most of your calories in snacks. So if you just do those two things, you're already eating better than 99% of the population, you know, and then you can follow whatever diet you want, you know, just avoid snacks and avoid eating all day long. So it's mm -hmm. common sense. And suddenly you'll, your nutrition will be a lot better. You'll have a lot more energy. And, and that's more or less what I discovered for myself. Really the important thing that I initially discovered was don't have snacks and don't eat too late. And I go back and forth on whether to eat in the morning. I don't know. Every answer is correct. <laughs> and then in terms of moving, okay, I try to go to the gym, but the gym is not my ideal source of exercise. Again, I try to go. So maybe I go on my good weeks. I'll go two or three times a week on my bad weeks. I won't go at all, but maybe I'll go once every two weeks. But I try to do something where I'm either taking a good walk or I do something that's, I'll call it play for lack of a better word, you know, do something that involves strenuous movement. Now we do all move all day long, but it's not like that movement helps us because there's so much obesity in this country, in this world. So you, you kind of have to move to a point where it's strenuous, where you feel like, oh my gosh, I don't really feel like moving anymore. I'm kind of tired now. So you kind of have to push yourself. So physical health is eat, move, sleep. Mm -hmm. Then just as important, there's no one leg that's more important than the other. So just as important is emotional health. Like if you're around people who are always putting you down, or people that you're arguing with, or you know, you always have this conversation in your head with somebody that you don't like, like, oh, I should have said this, but then they would have said this, then I should have said this. So those are bad conversations to have in your head. Better to use your head for creativity. So the less toxic people in your life, then the better your life is. Mm -hmm. So there's a saying by, I think, Jim Rohn, but the saying's sort of obvious, uh, you're the average of the five people that you spend your time with. There's also another saying, stand next to the smartest person in the room. So these are both good pieces of advice. But in general, be around people who love you, who you love. That's much better, obviously, than being around people who hate you, who you hate. So, mm. but if many people who have a corporate job, and I would say there's many situations in life, like school, corporate job, many relationships, where you feel like you're forced to spend time with people who you don't really like that much. And that's not just a little bit of time, but all day long for years that's really gonna ruin your life. You only have one life. So you might as well be around people who really make you a better person. So that's emotional health. So emotional health, it's all about being around the right people. Or I guess that's where it starts. Of course, there's a lot to it. So that really is just the start because it's not like I can just sort of call up five good people and say, hey, come on over and spend time with me. Like you have to be a good person also to attract good people around you. And that starts off with being honest, and with trying to help people, with trying to, you know, people talk about networking and that sounds really kind of like greasy and slimy, like, oh, I'm gonna be around all these people who are gonna bring me up. No, the way to really network is to introduce one person to another person and to try to do good things for both of those people. So every day I try to introduce people to each other and that idea alone has helped me 
so much in the past 10 years or the past 20 years, actually. I can't even think of a time when it hasn't helped me. That idea of introducing two people in your network to each other without expecting anything in return, like, oh, I don't want a fee in the middle or mm -hmm. I don't want you to give me credit in the middle. Just introduce two good people to each other. That idea alone will help you incredibly and, and change your life probably every single day before we started our interview. Two people I introduced to each other are now speaking at each other's conferences. And by the way, they both asked me to keynote the conferences. So because I introduced them to each other, by the way, one of them is a friend of mine hmm. from when we were nine years old. Okay, so I've been introducing him to people ever since. And so now hmm. I'm keynoting his conference next March, and he has other people who I've introduced him to who are speaking at his conference. So these kind of things compound, and it's, it's really incredible. Now, by the way, am I getting paid to speak at any of these conferences? Am I getting paid by anybody who is getting paid to speak at these conferences? No, I'm not getting paid a dime. It's all favors. The first currency, the most important currency in your life mm -hmm. is the idea currency. This is the real currency of the 21st century. Money is just a byproduct of that. But, but the favor currency, the idea currency, this is the real currency of, of this day and age. So anyway, that's emotional health. Yeah, and I, I do want to like delve a little bit into that area that you just touched upon, which is introduction of people and the idea currency. But yeah, let's 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 go over the daily practice and then we'll get back into some of these ideas a little bit. Yeah, the four areas, two I've talked about, physical health, emotional health, then mental health, then spiritual health. So mental health is really just creativity. Do one thing that's creative every day. So it might mean take a photograph that you think is really creative. It might mean write a post that's really creative. So Julie Cameron in the book, The Artist's Way, I don't know if, if you've read it or if any of your listeners have read it. She talks about doing something called morning pages. I haven't read it. So this is not a diary. This is not something for publication. It's just write three pages without lifting your hand off the paper. So that's one way to be creative every morning. You won't get writer's block doing it because you could just write blah, blah, blah for three pages if you have writer's block. But in general, you can write about, oh, here's things that I hate, here's things that I like, here's what happened to me yesterday, here's what's happening to me to now, here's what I enjoyed about uh, talking to Manny, here's other podcasts I would like to be on, here's ideas, here's mistakes I made in my first business. So it's morning pages, that's an easy way to get do something creative every day. Another easy way is try to get better at photography every day. So for me, when I was trying to do a photograph every day, some people take pictures of food. Some people take pictures of the sunset. I tried to walk up to somebody who looks sad and talk to them and then ask them if I could take their photograph. So I like to put myself into an interesting experience and then take a photograph out of it. But really, the basic thing that I like to do, which I think is incredibly helpful, and I've been doing this every day for, I would say, 15 years now, is I write 10 ideas a day. Because the idea muscle is a muscle mm -hmm. like any other. I strongly believe you might not be able to operate on it with a surgical tools, but you can operate on it with other ways. I believe it's just like any other muscle, it atrophies incredibly quickly. If you have a bike accident, you're in a hospital bed for two weeks, you'll need physical therapy to walk again. That's how fast your leg muscles atrophy. So it's the same thing with the idea muscle. Mm -hmm. If you don't come up with new ideas every day, your idea muscle will atrophy in a couple of weeks, which means most of us have atrophied our idea muscles. It's just a general state of society that we live in. But that's great news because if you just write down 10 ideas a day, within a few weeks, you'll start to really notice that your idea muscle is what's happening. I'm coming up with ideas all over the place. And within three to six months, no longer, just three to six months, you will literally be an idea machine. And you know, not that life is all about competition. In fact, it, it's not. But anybody who even tries to compete with you who's not an idea machine, you'll just leave them in the dust. There's no comparison. So I write down 10 ideas every single day. I, I can't even tell you how this has helped me. They could be ideas, oh, here's 10 books I can write. Here's 10 businesses I could start. Here's 10 ideas that Zappos can be a better company. Here's 10 ideas for Google to be a better company. And then people ask me, well, what do you do with these ideas? Do you, do you start executing on them? No, of course not. because you're writing 3,650 ideas a year. You'd go crazy if you tried to execute on all those ideas. So you just maybe one idea, I, I just throw the ideas out. 
And then uh, my, my only goal is to exercise. Mm. It's not like I carry a gym machine around with me everywhere. Once I'm done with the gym machine, I'm done with it. Like you, it's just, it's just exercise. So the key is exercise. And then people say, well, ideas are a dime a dozen. Execution is everything. Let me tell you this. You can't execute unless you're an idea machine because execution ideas are a subset of ideas. So when I have ideas for a business and let's say I say to myself, you know what? This might be a good a business to try. Out of all the 3,000 ideas this year, this is the one business idea I'm going to try. So I'll, the next day, I'll come up with 10 execution ideas. And they, they'll be very easy execution ideas because I want to experiment very easily if this business idea is good because I don't really know yet if the idea is good. But you have to be an idea machine to come up with execution ideas. So that's creativity. So I want to talk about, because you, you touch upon this in your book and in your talks, the idea that early in your career, you wanted to reach out to certain people. And the way you thought you would reach out to them was you said, okay, let me just buy you a cup of coffee. And nobody responded, right? But then you changed tact. Tell us that story because the story, there's a lot behind it. The whole idea of the street.com working with the street, then stock picker and how it all got sold and the process. Because for an entrepreneur, there's a lot to learn from that. Yes. So I I started writing these ideas down because when I lost all my money the very first time, I figured, well, I need to learn about money and finance. And I started reading lots of books. I started writing software to model the stock markets. But I also, you know, realized very quickly who the best in the world were. Let's say that the hundred best people in the world were in finance, the best hedge fund managers and investors and authors and so on. So I wrote like 40 emails to people, hey, can I buy you a cup of coffee and pick your brain? And of course, I got zero responses. And I say, of course, because you will never, ever, ever <laughs> get a response if you try that tactic. And I get that email every day. Can I buy you a cup of coffee? I'm in the city. It will only take you 15 minutes. Please let me buy you a cup of coffee so I can pick your brain. Your brain. And I have nothing against these people. They're trying and they're working hard. But I don't have time to respond to all those people and I don't have 15 minutes like because it's never really 15 minutes. I have to get to a place, then it's really an hour and then I have to get home and I'd really rather work on, you know, a book or talking to you, Manny, or, you know, being on a podcast or work on my own podcast. Like I love doing what I do. I don't have that much time. Even when I do have time, mm -hmm. like I mentioned earlier, I like to play. I'll go and meet a friend to play ping pong or go to the gym or go play air hockey or just take a nice walk. So I don't have time to go and, you know, meet people I don't really know that well. So I get it. I get now why people didn't respond to me. Yeah. Like if I write to Warren Buffett and say, hey, I'll buy you a cup of coffee. It's not like Warren Buffett, who has $70 billion, is going to say to his secretary, Hey, stop everything. James Altucher is coming to Omaha to buy me a $1 cup of coffee. Um, I have to meet him, put him on the schedule. He's Warren Buffett is never in his life did Warren Buffett say that <laughs> unless it was like a beautiful model. I'm willing to believe Warren Buffett did, does say that for beautiful models, but he w certainly would not say that to me, <laughs> the opposite of a beautiful model. And so, so here's what I started doing. I started writing to people and saying, hey, I don't want anything from you. You never have to talk to me. You never have to respond to this email, whatever. But here are 10 ideas to improve your life in some way. I didn't say your life, but let's say it was a hedge fund manager. I would write, here's 10 stock ideas, or, and here's why I think they're good. Or another hedge fund manager, I'd write, here's 10 software ideas your programmers can program. Uh, here's even the code for it. Why don't you implement this and try it out? It's worked for me and here's my track record. You never have to respond to me. You could have this code for free. So I wrote, again, 40 of these emails. And again, most people don't respond. They're very busy people. They're important people. Warren Buffett really does not need anything from me. There's not a single idea I could ever write Warren Buffett where he's ever going to respond. But I wrote to uh, several people who responded. Three people responded. Two of them are I responded to right away. The third one I responded to last year. 14 years later. And so the two people who responded, one was Jim Cramer, who, who obviously right, he has the TV show Mad Money. He um, runs thestreet.com. He's a big writer. He's written a lot of finance books. So he's a genius. You know, people have their own opinions about him, but to me, he's a genius. And I wrote to him, Jim, I didn't know him, but I wrote to him. I said, Jim, here are 10 article ideas you should write. And if you write these, you never have to give me any credit. 
I will definitely subscribe and tell all my friends to subscribe. And I would love to see your viewpoint on these 10 ideas. And I really researched hard. I, at this point, I knew a lot about finance because I had read hundreds of books, including all of Jim's books, by the way. I really prepared to write to one person. I read maybe everything I could about Jim Cramer, all his articles, his great book, Confessions of a Hedge Fund Manager or something like that. And I wrote, here's 10 article ideas for you. They were great article ideas, I thought, because I really researched them. And he wrote back within minutes and he said, these ideas are great. How about you write them? And that's when I started writing for thestreet.com. A few years later, I started writing. My editor at thestreet.com became an editor at the Financial Times. I started writing for the Financial Times. A few years after that, one of my editors at thestreet.com became an editor at the Wall Street Journal. I started writing for the Wall Street Journal. And then I started writing books about finance. I created a finance website. Guess what? Thestreet.com, run by Jim Cramer, bought my website that I built for $10 million. And that's the power of exercising your idea muscle. So that was one person who responded. Another person who responded was Victor mm -hmm. Niederhofer, who was running a $300 million hedge fund. And he said, these ideas are great. Why don't you come over for lunch? He lived two hours away. I said, no problem. I'll be there tomorrow. And I got lost along the way. And this was before the GPS thing happened. So I was two hours late for lunch. I was literally crying in my car. I was so late for lunch and I couldn't find his house at all. Finally, I get there. It's this enormous, enormous house. He had saved lunch for me. We had lunch. We played a game of chess. We played a game of checkers. He gave me a tour of the house. We talked for hours about finance. We took a big walk on, he had this huge property. We took a big walk. And a few weeks later, he allocated some, he didn't allocate his hedge fund money to me, but he allocated some of his personal money to me to manage. He was the first person to give me money to manage. And from there, I was able to start a hedge fund. And the ideas from that hedge fund I started, I put into the website I developed at thestreet.com later bought. So just exercising my idea muscle for months was able to help me come up with ideas for these for 40 people, of which two responded, of which I responded to those two. And I was able to create two different careers out of that, which led to combining those careers and combining my prior career building websites. And I don't know, it was just, and was able to combine my prior interest in writing and add to my uh, ability as a writer. I mean, I, I've been writing now every single day since that moment. So let's call it 15 years. I've been writing every single day articles and what, what a great thing just coming out of this practice of exercising my idea muscle. I really feel grateful. By the way, the third person who responded is one of my favorite writers, one of my favorite heroes in the finance world, Nassim Taleb. He responded and said, I would love to have lunch with you. Your ideas are mm. great. I would love to have lunch with you. And I never responded to him because I was busy enough responding to Jim Cramer and Victor Niederhofer. So finally, in 2014, I wrote to him and I said, Nassim, you wrote to me so graciously in 2002. I didn't mean for this huge delay in responding to you, but I, here's all the things I love <laughs> about your last book, Anti-Fragile. Here's some questions I have that you didn't address, and maybe we can address them on my podcast. Here's a guy who never gives interviews and never goes on any podcast. He even told me it was the one podcast he ever did or the one podcast he did that year. I don't know if he's done more since then. And he came on my podcast 12 years later. And again, I never would have been able to reach out if I hadn't initially reached out to him in 2002. So this is 12 years later, I responded to him. What a gracious person and human being that he responded even despite my delay of 12 years and he came on my podcast. It was one of my first podcasts I did in person. By the way, Manny, I highly recommend doing podcasts in person. It's really great. One of the first podcasts, though, that I did in person, just, mm. just a great podcast, wonderful human being. I recommend people listen to that one I did with Nassim. And then finally, the spiritual health. I don't like using the word spiritual anymore because people think, oh, no, is he going to talk about meditation or prayer or religion? Maybe I am and maybe I'm not. You can fill in the blank for spiritual. But at the very minimum, what I like to do every day and I do this, this is almost the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning. I have an accountability partner and I send my accountability partner three things I'm grateful for right this moment. And he sends back to me, or maybe he'll start it off that day. He sends back to me three things he's grateful for. And we do this every day and we've been doing this for a long time. And 
you know, I typically I will send I'll send three things, two things that are difficult things that I'm grateful for. So let's say hypothetically something bad happens in your life. Try to find the silver lining in it. And, and I call that a difficult gratitude problem. So you have to think about it a little. And that kind of exercises my gratitude muscle. But then also it's good to think of, I, I didn't always think this way, but now I do. Think of at least one easy thing to be grateful for. So grateful that it's nice weather today. Or you know, grateful that I wake up next to a kind and wonderful person today. So something like this is nice too. So just doing that makes you a spiritual person. Understanding that Gratitude and anger and gratitude and fear can't be in your brain at the same time. This is a wonderful practice to do every day. Now, I'm going to add a fifth thing, which is to try to improve at these things, at these fourth legs of the daily practice, 1% a day. And the math, of course, is compounding. Mm -hmm. If you improve at anything 1% a day, you'll be 3,800% better in a year, 38 times better. So that means, I don't know. If you could run a mile in 38 minutes at the beginning of the year, now you can run a mile in one minute at the end of the year. Now that's impossible. It shows you the example of being 38 times better. I don't know if the math's correct there. And then the second question is, well, how do you compound these esoteric things like emotional health? And there's no answer to that. There's no way to quantify your emotional health, but just ask yourself at the end of the day, did I make an attempt to be 1% better at these things? Are my ideas a tiny, tiny, tiny bit better today than they were yesterday? Was my physical health tiny bit better today? Just a tiny bit. 1% is a small, mm. almost immeasurable amount better today than yesterday. Did I, did I really think about gratitude a little bit more today than I was yesterday? And, and maybe that means also taking someone that I'm angry at. You know, I'm angry at people all the time. Somebody did something bad to me 27 years ago. I might think about it today. Ugh, I'm so angry at them for what they did. Can I turn that anger into into compassion, and that's a, a spiritual practice. So did I improve my spiritual health just a tiny, tiny bit today than yesterday? So again, that's like a fifth leg to this daily practice that's I call mm -hmm. the 1% rule. I think it's just as important as, as the daily practice itself. So you know, all of those together kind of coalesced into a story which I realized was happening all across the economy and all across society, which is by doing these four things, these are really the building blocks where we could then start from these building blocks to choose ourselves to do whatever career and dream we want to do. Now, I'm not going to be a professional basketball player because I'm not six foot seven and I'm not fast enough and I'm not athletic enough and I'm 48 years old. So a lot of things go against me. But for many other careers, by using these legs of this daily practice, I could choose to do whatever I want to do. Let's say I want to publish a novel. Well, I don't need any more to depend on an editorial assistant to like my novel, then an editor, then a marketing department, then a publisher, then a bookstore purchaser. Those are the five people or an agent. Those are the six people that have to approve your book before it becomes published, a published novel. Now I can just, because of modern technology, I could just upload a finished novel to Amazon and publish. And will it be better or worse than the published novels out there from traditional publishers? Maybe yes, maybe no. There are a lot of crappy novels being published by traditional publishers, and there are a lot of great novels being self-published by being directly uploaded to Amazon. So I use novel as an example. I haven't published a novel, but you can pick any category, and I could tell you the middlemen, the gatekeepers are going away. So now we live in this choose-yourself economy that's dominated by ideas rather than dominated mm -hmm. by middlemen. And that, Manny, is my story. That's a great story. And I recently heard, uh, maybe you've been talking about it on your podcast or on some of the videos or interviews, that you are trying to reinvent yourself every six months. It seems like that's one of the themes you're working towards. Is that happening as we speak? Yeah, I mean, the reinvention is a constant process because it's related to this 1%. Because imagine, even if you become twice as good at a sport, well, now you're going to have to reinvent yourself. Like, are you going to play the sport with different people? Are you going to upgrade your teachers? Are you going to start writing about the sport? Are you going to start combining things you're already good at with the sport? You know, combination is a very important thing. So if I'm a good writer and I get good at golf, uh, maybe now I can start writing on golf blogs and really join a community of readers and passionate followers of golf where, I don't know, it adds to my pleasure in life. So reinvention is a constant process. And six months is a little arbitrary, but I would say from start to finish, let's say I decided 
I know nothing about golf and now I want to be a great golf player and, and have some career and some money and even some wealth related to the sport of golf. By the way, I hate golf. I have, I'm bored by it. I have no interest in it. I'm just using it as an example. I think that kind of reinvention takes about five years from beginning to end where you start from no knowledge to making serious money. And I can't even imagine right now how I could make money at golf because I'm not going to be a professional golf player. But I know if I'm coming up with 10 ideas a day, if I'm physically healthy, if I'm spiritually healthy, if I'm around good people and other people interested in golf, I know within five years, because I've done it again and again, I know I will be making a living and even some wealth from some area in the field of golf. So let me ask this from the perspective of someone who's just starting off in their business. They're early stage entrepreneur and they've chosen a field. They're working in it. They're working hard at it. Like looking back at your career, looking back at the books you've written and everything that you've been doing, what are some of the specific things you would do in that field in order to grow fastest, in order to bring the business to life the fastest? What, what would be the accelerators in some ways to getting to the next level? The first layer, again, is this daily practice. I, I know so many people who lost their health while building a business because they figured I'll be healthy after the business is a success and then their business is not a success. So you can't stop ever <laughs> this daily practice. You have to keep doing it. So again, that's physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual health, 1% mm-hmm. a day improvement. Every, that's the foundation that you build the house on. And then the house itself you want to get better at something, you have to do what I'm going to call a plus minus equal. So find your plus, which means find your real and virtual mentors. So let's take finance as an example. My real mentors, as I mentioned before, were people like Jim Cramer, Victor Niederhofer, uh, you know, Jim Cramer on the writing slash finance side, Victor Niederhofer on the hedge fund side. And then there were other people who became my mentors, but also there was virtual mentors. So I read books, any book on finance written in the past 400 years, I probably read it. But let's take Warren Buffett as an example. Warren Buffett, I've never met him. I've never spoke to him, never emailed with him, but I've read so many things he's written and I've read so many books about him and I've studied so much about him. I even wrote a book about him in 2005. That's how much I studied him as a virtual mentor. So Warren Buffett became like my biggest virtual mentor, but I had maybe a hundred virtual mentors. So that's your plus. Find your plus, first thing. Now find your equals. Find people who challenge you. Find people who you can talk to as an equal about, uh, and I'm gonna use finance as an example. I found other people who were day traders, other people who were writing software about the markets. I found other people who were working for Jim Cramer or working for Victor Niederhofer or working for other hedge fund managers and how they were building their success, other young people like me at the time. And we all kind of grew up in the business together. And when I say we grew up together, we still keep in touch with each other on a maybe daily basis. I mean, one of the other people who traded for Victor Niederhofer with me, I feel like we were in the trenches together. We talk to each other still every single day. My investing partner from back then, he is still my investing partner. We talk to each other every single day. So find your equals, the people who are good people who are going to grow with you and who are going to challenge you and are going to challenge your thinking and challenge your, you know, kind of, I guess, theories about the world we live in. And then the third thing is find your minus. Now, I don't mean find people who are worse than you because it feels good to be better than somebody. But I mean, find somebody you can teach because the best way to learn something is to teach something. Hmm. Because when I read a book, I only remember maybe one or 2% of what's in the book. I've asked a lot of people, I used to think it was maybe 10 to 20%, but I'm now quoting other people who I think are smarter than me. And it seems like one to 2% is about the average of what people remember from and retain from a book or a podcast or whatever. But if you teach something that you learn, like when I do a podcast with, let's say, I don't know, a super athlete, I'll write down immediately afterwards, I'll write down 10 things I learned from John Wallace, the star Knicks basketball player, you know, when he played for the Knicks, he was a star forward, 10 things I learned from Jewel, 10 things I learned from Mark Cuban, I'll write it down right away. And then I'll write it as an article. So this way, it confirms for me, I'm writing things that are important enough that I think that they're good enough, I could put out as an article without embarrassing myself. So I want to be able to teach what I'm learning, and that's how I learn the best. So for me, the process of article writing and sharing with an audience 
That's like finding the minus, the group I could teach. And they're not necessarily better or worse than me, but they're people I want to share with that I could teach. So if you want to get better at something like golf, find your plus minus Mm. equal or like business, find your plus minus equal. And then, so that's the house. We built the foundation. Now we built the house. Now we want to design the house. Okay. So you could take anything as an example, take Airbnb as an example. First off, that's a company that was started in 2007. It's 2016 now. So it's nine years later. This is not an overnight success, even though they were successful early on, it takes years to build a multi-billion dollar amazing business. Even my first business, which wasn't a multi-billion dollar business, it was a multi-million dollar business, but it took time to build and it took time to build the skill set. And there, what I can say is you can't stop anything you're doing. You have to always find your plus minus equal. You have to keep coming up with 10 ideas a day about your business. You know, Airbnb, I think it was 2012 or 2011. I forget which year. Many years after they started, they were started by software guys, but they realized, oh, we're competing with hotel chains. So they hired a head of hospitality, Chip Conley, who had previously owned 50 hotels. Joie de Vivre, that's the hotel chain he started, right? It's not like he was a plus in the software space because they already used other pluses in the software space, but they realized down the road in their process of reinvention that, oh, we need to reinvent Airbnb a little bit to be a little bit more in the hospitality business because that's where we're getting some negative feedback. I'm just guessing that's where they were getting negative feedback. So let's find a plus, let's find an equal, let's find a minus. And they hired Chip Conley to be their plus to transform Airbnb into a much more hospitality oriented company. And you could see even with their recent announcements, how they've evolved in that area. I mean, it's incredible, really. So these are people who really understood at a deep level, the concept of plus minus equal and 1% improvement every day. And that's really how you um, build a business and get better. That is great. And it's almost like uh, you've laid out the strategies for us in the book, as well as as you've been talking about how to connect with people in all these different phases, which is you know, writing these ideas down and helping them out or even uh, doing the introductions to other people, which is what you call introducing people every day. And I believe you do that even today. You introduce people every day. Is that, is that like a ritual you have now? Oh, yeah. I call it permission networking. So I think of two people who would be good for each other. Let's say their names are, you know, Mike and Paul. I'll say to Mike, Mike, here's why I think you should meet Paul. Is it okay if I make the intro? And I'll say to Paul, Here's why I think you should meet Mike. Here, is it okay if I make the intro? And by the way, I might be using my 10 ideas on Mike and Paul that day. And uh, if they both say yes, they've given me permission. I now, have, I now can do permission networking. I will introduce Mike and Paul. I will reiterate uh, the, the reasons why I think they should meet. And then I'll say, remove me from the email chain. Good luck, you guys. And then sometimes things happen. Sometimes they don't. But, but more often than not, things happen. By the way, sometimes things happen five years later. You never know. When you plant when you plant seeds in a garden, you never know mm. when, when they'll start growing or if they'll start growing. You know, and of course, you know, there's the 80-20 rule. 20% of the seeds you, you plant will create 80% of the ultimate, you know, value that's or, or, or all of the flowers that bloom in your garden. So, you know, and also I should add, I could have gotten a lot more tactical mm. about building a business. Like there's building, you know, how do you build an email list? How do you do marketing? How do you do copywriting? But these are the sort of things that, you know, these strategies and these techniques and these platforms, you know, change all the time. And if you're doing the 10 ideas a day, you're going to learn these things very quickly anyway, mm-hmm. because it's just going to become part of your idea machine. And if, and if you're, if you're doing a plus minus equal, you're also going to learn these things because you're going to find people to teach you and you're going to study people and then you're going to study similar businesses and you're going to learn the things you need to learn. So, so really what I just gave you was the, the full tool chest I use. So, so I started a business in March. Um, I started a brand new business in, in, at the end of February in 2015, in 2015. And, and I did everything I just told you. Um, but I didn't know anything about how the, the real mm-hmm. tactics of the business. Um, I had to just do the things I told you I did. So at the end of 2015, we had 17 million in revenues and about 1.6 or 1.7 million in profits. This year, I'll tell you in 2016, we'll probably do about 11 million in revenues and 
two million in profits. So so we we upped our we grew twenty percent, a little more, twenty five percent our bottom line, and uh, so it's going well. And next year we'll build our bottom line. Wow. I think maybe a hundred percent because now I'm really starting to to understand how it works. Um, but again, there's there were lots of tactics, and I'm still learning the tactics. But I actually delegate the tactics, so I don't really do the tactics myself. For me, what's important is the daily practice and the plus minus equal, and that's how I was able to reinvent myself to start this new brand new business. And what was the business again? I'm always in the business of trying to help people, so I sell kind of not quite courses, but information on finance that you can't really find elsewhere, or I sell information on how to start a business, or I sell information on nutrition, and I have other researchers and writers help me out. Mm-hmm. Gosh, we have articles on anything involved in kind of this modern day economy, because I think what people forget is that the economy itself is totally different than it was 10 years ago, and it's, it's changing faster and faster all the time. So I have a team of researchers that keep up with all these changes, and I share this information for a price because now I have to pay for people. I have about a dozen employees, and and it's it's a very lean machine, but it, but the business is working. Yep, that's great. It's pretty amazing what you've been able to accomplish in less than two years, um, which can take a long time for a lot of people. So, congratulations. I'm happy with it. Thank you. And and I should mention, depending on when this podcast comes out, I also have a book coming out in early January uh, called Reinvent Yourself, which covers a lot of these topics as well. That's great. I'm looking forward to getting my hands on that and hopefully talking to you about that as well. I think uh, before we close the interview, I would love for you to tell our listeners all about where to find you, all the other stuff that you're involved with, your podcast and your blog and the courses that you're talking about so that our listeners can avail of these as well. Well, really, everything can be found at jamesaltucher.com. And my last name is spelled, I mean, they see it right there probably, but A-L-T-U-C-H-E-R. So jamesaltucher.com. And you can pretty much find anything there. I, I guess I, I'm also proud of my Instagram account. So I'm, I'm at altucher, A-L-T-U-C-H-E-R. And I don't know, my books are Choose Yourself and you know now Reinvent Yourself. And I, I have 16 other books, but most of them you probably shouldn't buy. <laughs> Just start with Choose Yourself and Reinvent Yourself. And and by the way, I wrote my first children's book this year. So my daddy owns all of outer space. So you can buy my children's book too if you have kids. <laughs> my daddy owns all of outer space. It's got only five star. It's only got five star reviews on it. So uh, I'm happy with that. That is great. Uh, that's great. Well, James, thank you very much for taking the time to do this really high energy, very entertaining, and at the same time, very enlightening interview. So thank you. Thanks, Manny. Well, my ambitious friends, I hope you're excited about 2017 and you're planning for it, dreaming about it, thinking about it. And in order to help you with that, we're launching our brand new course, which has video summaries of the world's best books on goal setting, productivity, execution, time management, all that good stuff. So if you want to make 2017 your best year ever, I would highly encourage you to check out this course on our website. Just head on over to 2000books.com and just browse the courses tab. You should see the course right there. Here's the thing. In order to have a great year, you need to have your goals. You need to have your strategy. You need to have your execution plans. And this course is designed exactly for that, to give you a head start when you hit the ground running in 2017. Well, I really hope you make 2017 your best year ever. Until next time, my friends.